Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu slash LCSI. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, MindShift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome to the MindShift Podcast, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung. Today, I want to share an all-too-common experience students have. I definitely went through it. You study for a test, feeling like you learned the material, only to find out when you take the test that you didn't really know as much as you thought. Or you sit in a class and take notes, but don't really understand what the teacher said. Our guest, University of Virginia professor Daniel Willingham, is the author of a new book to help us break the cycle of ineffective learning habits. It's called Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard and How You Can Make It Easy. Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night. Knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Daniel Willingham, I looked at my bookcase last night and I have at least three of your books, including Why Don't Students Like School? And I have a feeling your new book, Outsmart Your Brain, builds on that work. You have a lot of great tips in Outsmart Your Brain, and I encourage all our listeners to read them all. But today I'd like to focus on three things you have great strategies for, for students. How to learn when you're sitting in a lecture, how to take notes that work for you, and a big one, how to study. And then for teachers, what role they have in helping students when they give lectures. Does that sound good to you? Sounds great. So let's talk about the lecture. What advice do you have for students who have to sit there for an hour? Let's start with that very first minute of class. In the very first minute, what you want to do is, is well, two things. One is sort of get yourself mentally prepared for the fact that this is going to be somewhat challenging. Uh, there's a tendency to feel like uh, whether you're conscious of this or not, to feel like listening isn't that hard because we're listening all the time. We have conversations with people. Uh, and it's true that during a conversation, you don't have to be real strategic about how you're listening almost always. 
but lectures are different. Lectures are organized um, in a way that is more complex than a typical conversation is organized. Uh, and so you actually do need to be strategic, in addition to the fact that obviously what you're listening to is going to be complicated and going to be new to you. So that's the first thing you need to do during that first minute is sort of psych yourself up a little bit and recognize that you're doing something a little bit challenging. The second thing to do is to recognize sort of big picture, what is this going to be about? Anybody who's lecturing is going to start with that. You know, okay, class, today we're going to be talking about the role of long-term memory in problem solving or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, whether you plan to or not, it's a, you almost can't help but sort of give an overview of whatever the topic is for the day. Uh, and that's really important when you're, uh, when you're sitting in that lecture class to have some idea of like, all right, what is the, what's the goal of the lecturer here? What is it they're trying to get across? Because everything that you're about to hear really ought to be interpreted in light of that goal that the teacher has. For the person giving the lecture, for the educator, they also have a role in helping students understand what should they do when they lecture. I'll address that in a moment, but let me backtrack a little bit and explain a little bit more about what the challenge is going to be for the listener. The challenge for the listener is, I, I alluded to this when I said that lectures are organized differently than conversation. So when you and I are talking whether, again, whether I'm thinking about it consciously or not, at some level, I know that if I want to refer to something that I mentioned 15 minutes ago, I kind of need to refresh your memory of that. Lectures are very different in that I will not feel the need to give you that reminder. I'll just sort of assume that you've been paying attention all along and that You've retained what I've said up until this point, and I can freely make reference to anything I've said over the course of this hour or whatever it's been. And lectures are frequently organized in ways that make reference to things that happened a while ago in the lecture. So, for example, if I'm lecturing about uh, World War II, I may want to, uh, the point of the lecture is going to be how World War II started, and I want to say there are five main reasons that World War II, or five main causes, or something like that. Those five causes are supposed to be connected in your mind, in the mind of the student, because they're, they're unified. They're all causes of World War II. By the time I'm getting to cause number four, Cause number one may have been 20 minutes ago, and yet I'm expecting that you're going to draw that connection. It's a very general property of lectures is that they're organized hierarchically. Uh, and when you've got that organization, it's very logical in the speaker's mind. But the listener, of course, can't perceive that directly. Nobody can talk in a hierarchy. So I'm sort of, as an instructor, I'm sort of expecting my audience to uh, understand this organization, even though the organization is not very explicit in what I'm saying. So that's a big part of the challenge and the reason that you need to be an active listener. As you're sitting there listening, you need to think, okay, so she's basically making this point. How does that contribute to the larger goal, the, the overarching point of this lecture? That's why you want to be alert during that first minute so that you have that idea firmly in mind. 
Now, to turn to what an instructor can do to make things clearer, it's probably obvious to the audience what I'm going to suggest. You want to, to the extent you can, make the organization clear. So if you're going to talk about the five causes of World War II, do things, do, do sort of mental signposts, auditory signposts for your audience. Say things like, okay, I told you there were going to be five reasons. Now we're finished with reason number two. Now let's turn to reason number three so that it's very obvious where you are in the lecture and those sort of tips to organization will help your audience understand much better. So in order to center learning, it sounds like the educator and the student both have to understand where each is coming from. Exactly right. And this is so pervasive that instructors forget where their audience is coming from. There's actually a term for it. It's called the curse of knowledge. And it basically means that once I know something, it's very hard for me to sort of conceive of what it's like not to know that. So I just sort of talk to people as if they already know most of it. Uh, And of course, that's not a very helpful way to teach. All right. I know you are very knowledgeable in this. So let's go to our second topic, taking notes. What's the best way for students to take notes, especially when there are so many note-taking strategies out there in the world? And maybe more controversially, what's your position on highlighters? Taking notes is really difficult. uh, And every student knows this. uh, And the, the, the reason is, again, pretty intuitive to students. You're in a pretty much constant state of mental overload when you're taking notes. You're trying to listen to this material, and as I've just suggested, understanding new content when it's coming to you in a lecture is is really a very mentally active process. At the same time, you're trying, that you're trying to understand, you're trying to decide which is the part of this that's most important that I need to record. You're trying to decide how you're gonna phrase it, that you're shifting attention. There's just a whole lot going on. And this is why most students, when they're taking notes, they feel frantic and as if they really can't keep up. So the, the strategy I would suggest is, first thing to do is to think about what is my goal here in taking notes? Sometimes you feel like I need to be very, very complete, uh, but the content I'm writing down really isn't that difficult to understand. So this might be a circumstance, for example, where you're in a biology lab or something like that, and you've got a handout that tells you how to do the lab, but when you're just about to start, the teacher is going over some of the details, giving you a, fleshing things out a little bit so to be sure that you know how to follow the instructions. This is a case where you don't want to miss anything. You really want to get absolutely everything. But what you're being told is is probably not that complicated or difficult to understand. More frequently, the opposite is true. There are a lot of details, but they're difficult to understand. And the challenge here is really the understanding part. And getting everything would be nice, but it's it's probably not possible and it's probably not crucial either. So here you really want to take different notes. Instead of frantically trying to, you know, doing everything you can to get everything down, You want to slow down on your note-taking a little bit and really think and try to understand. And the the thing that happens when you're frantic is you frequently start trying to write everything down, and and so you, you, you just fall into dictation mode. 
because it's mentally less taxing for me to not really think very much about what the instructor is saying and just write everything down word for word to the extent I can. That's a bad trap to fall into because it is perfectly possible to write things down and not really understand what it is you're writing down. So instead, what I tell my students to do is don't write down what I say, write down what you're thinking. So sit and listen, really process, try to understand, and then write down what that understanding is. Those notes are going to be much more useful to you later in a class like that where the real, the real challenge is understanding this new content. I actually have to write that down. Don't write down what I say. Write down what you're thinking because that is such a that's such an interesting way of taking notes. Yeah, and it's it's not common. I mean, and part of the temptation too of writing down exactly what the instructor says is, as I said, one thing is that you feel like, well, I'm I don't really understand it that well, but that's okay. I'm you know I've got down exactly what she said, so I'm I'm sure I'll figure it out later. And the truth is, if you're not getting it now, you're not going to figure it out later. It's it's really not an optimal way to learn. I should also say a word about highlighting because you uh, you mentioned highlighting before in your questions. Uh, students do some highlighting of their notes. Uh, they do even more highlighting when they're reading. There's lots of evidence that highlighting is really not very helpful. The reason it's not helpful is kind of intuitive when you think about it. When you're highlighting, what it feels like you're doing is you're, of course, highlighting the, the bits that are really important, and that is saving you time later because then when you come back, you know what's important, you know what to focus on. But studies show students are not very effective in highlighting. They tend to highlight definitions and sort of low-level information, which is fine, that's important, but they tend not to highlight conceptual information. Uh, and they're also pretty inconsistent in what they highlight. And this is easy to understand because the first time you're reading material that's new to you and challenging, of course you don't understand it that well. So what are the odds you're going to be highlighting the most important parts? So instead of highlighting, you're really better off taking notes as you read because notes you can always change later. As your understanding gets deeper, you can go back and edit those notes and make them more effective. Highlighting uh, that, of course, you really can't do. Now, let's get to studying. When I was in school, studying to me meant sitting at my desk and reading and rereading the material and, you know, mumbling to myself as I <laughs> highlighted important details. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think I know the answer to this. Was I doing it right? If not, what are some great studying strategies for students? Yeah, rereading is not optimal because rereading actually is is sort of not great in two ways. Uh, it's not a very effective way to get things into memory, and I'll mention more effective ways in a moment. But it also has the uh, side effect of making it feel like you're learning. What um, what rereading does is it makes content feel more familiar. Uh, and familiarity, the way psychologists use the term, is just the way we use it in everyday conversation. When you see someone on the street and you say, that person looks familiar, what you mean is, I know I've seen them before, but I really can't tell you anything else about them. Familiarity is, of course, not what you want when you're preparing for an exam. You need to be able to say a whole lot about whatever the content is that you're supposed to commit to memory. 
so rereading boosting familiarity is not helping you. So the type of memory that you want, the way to get that type of memory, is really by probing your memory, sort of trying to remember it, is actually a really effective way uh, of sealing memory in. That's one thing you should do. So testing yourself. Students do test themselves, but they mostly test themselves when they think they're probably done uh, and they're trying to see whether or not they know it well enough that they can stop studying. But testing yourself is actually a really effective way to study. So that's one thing to do. The other thing to do is to make sure that all of the content you're trying to remember is meaningful to you. Memory loves meaning. This is the way that we hold on to things. This is why the day after you see a movie, when you run into a friend, you say, oh, I saw this that, that new movie that's out. And your friend says, oh, what's it about? You never say, well, I don't know. I didn't study it or anything. You know, I just saw it, right? Like the memory for that movie comes along for free just as you're experiencing the movie. And that's because it's so meaningful. Movies, you know, narratives, you can't help but sort of appreciate what the meaning is. And so if you want to make things memorable that you're uh, when you're studying, the way to do it is to make sure that they're meaningful. Is that what you mean by this quote you have in your book, memory is the residue of thought? It is. I mean, especially when, when I mentioned that you, you are able to remember movies uh, w- without really trying to. Wanting to remember things really has no impact on the likelihood you're going to remember them or not remember them. When you think about it, this is sort of is consistent with your experience. You remember all kinds of things that you really have no interest in remembering. You know all kinds, you know, like if I ask members of your audience, like, so is Kanye West still married to Kim Kardashian? Most people know that, even if they're not especially interested in those celebrities. And um, but and they certainly didn't like think that's a fact that's important for me to know. I need to study that. It's just something that you thought about a little bit. You thought about it in a way that was kind of meaningful, and you remembered it. And then on the other side, there are all kinds of things that you really want to remember. For example, the name of somebody who you meet, and you maybe mumble to yourself, you know, this this person's name is Dan. Okay, Dan, Dan, Dan. And that just doesn't do anything at all. So that's not the way memory operates. It doesn't, it's not sensitive at all to whether or not you want to remember something. And instead, your memory is sensitive to how you think about things. So when you think about the meaning of things, when you connect that meaning to personal experience, that's the way that memory is going to stick with you. I want to ask you about the title of your book, Outsmart Your Brain. Why did you choose that title? Because it made me wonder if we are in struggle against ourselves. I think to some extent that's true. Um, It's titled Outsmart Your Brain because there is a bias, a, a, a sort of predilection to engage in certain types of thinking when you want to learn new things that frequently goes wrong. I've alluded to some of them in this conversation. When you're in a lecture, the natural thing to do is to listen the way that you always listen. You're very experienced in listening, and it's not obvious to you that you need a strategy, but you actually do. Same thing applies to reading. We're, you, we learn to read 
reading simple narratives and re, you know when you sit down at home to read a book you don't feel like you need to be strategic about it and that process works very well for novels it works very well for light nonfiction the kinds of things we read for fun it doesn't work very well for textbooks you need a different strategy and i've also alluded briefly to the idea that you're mind can fool you about whether or not you really know something about the best way to commit something to memory. So this is kind of pervasive throughout the processes that you go through when you're trying to learn something for a class. Uh, frequently, your brain gives you cues about how well you're doing it, uh, but the cues are a little bit misleading. My last question for you is about procrastination. There are more conversations in schools about executive functioning skills and such, but everyone has to deal with procrastination at some point in their lives, either because uh, we are the perpetrator or the victim of procrastination. Do we live with it, manage it, get rid of it? Yeah, I think manage it is a really good word. There may be people who can get rid of it. I mean, I've been at this for decades, and I, I struggle with procrastination just like everyone else. Um, the way psychologists think about procrastination is, again, pretty, pretty typical, uh, uh, consistent with the way most people would typically think about it. There's unpleasant work to be done or work that you're anticipating is going to be unpleasant. And then there's a more attractive alternative. So you have a choice to make. Which one are you going to do? And you make the choice of what's going to be more pleasurable now and you put off the thing that seems like it's not going to be very fun. So long term, what you would like to do is remove the choice, make work into a habit and when, you know, when something is habitual, by definition, you're not really thinking about, should I do it? Should I not do it? I mean, the example I always use is if you have a habit of brushing your teeth before bed, you don't like go through a process of a decision every night. Like you just kind of find yourself in the bathroom brushing your teeth without even quite realizing how you got there. And you can turn work into that habit as well. You make schoolwork that kind of habit. The key is to plan your work by time instead of planning it by task. So most students, high school and college students, they, they go home at night and they think, okay, what do I need to do you know, in the next few days? Do I have reading I'm supposed to do? Do I have a quiz I'm supposed to prepare for? And you know that always leaves open the possibility, well, there's really nothing that's that urgent, and so maybe I'm not doing any work tonight. A much better way to deal with uh, your workload is to just have a set block of time. You work every single night. So maybe it's like right after supper, then I, I work for a two-hour block. And if you don't have anything due tomorrow or the next day, maybe you're working on assignments that are due the next week. And if you do it that way, that really helps with procrastination because, again, it just becomes habitual. You know you're just going to sit down and, uh, and do work during that time block every day, and the decision is removed. Thank you so much for all these tips, Daniel. I think our listeners will find it very helpful. I mean, I plan to apply them in my own life, so appreciate you being on our podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. University of Virginia professor Daniel Willingham is the author of a book I wish I had when I was a student. It's called Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard and How You Can Make It Easy. 
He's also the author of Raising Kids Who Read. We'll have more interviews with experts in education and beyond. Hit follow on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a thing. And if you have a minute, check out the link in our bio where you can find a listener survey and tell us about yourself and what you'd like to hear in the future. It helps us serve you. The team that serves you includes me, Ki Sung, Nima Gobier, Karen Newhouse, and Marlena Jackson Rotondo. Our editor is Chris Hambert, Seth Samuel is our sound designer, Jen Sheehan is our head of podcasts, and Holly Kernan is KQD's chief content officer. MindShift is supported in part by the generosity of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and members of KQED. Special thanks to Kate Kennedy and the Columbia School of Journalism Sulzberger Program for hosting me this week. Thanks all for listening. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.